Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I am Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling is my friend, my lost brother, and co-host Adam. I was going to say, I'm not your lost sister, but I could be your (laughs) lost brother. I'll take being my lost brother. We have enough in common with our 80s love, and I think we're about the same age, maybe, kind of in the same life situation at this point in our lives that... Yes, you are my lost twin brother. We both have a type of superpower, but they're different. So yeah, well, yeah. Here, let's. I'm gonna do. It. I'm gonna show you, and I'm gonna move this thing with my mind. Uh, did you see that? Yeah. Oh, it's hard for people I, in an audio medium to see what I just did, but it was really, really impressive. Does eating raw potatoes count as a superpower? Because I do that sometimes. Uh, it does to me. Uh, <laughs> I've never done that, so I've eaten some undercooked French fries before that are were not that's, very good. Yeah, but. that's just like insulting to the potato right there. Undercooked. <laughs> if you're gonna just chop up a potato, deep fry the mess out of that thing. If you're gonna do that, or bake it, so you it just really eat well. it like an apple. Sometimes I used really? to when I was a kid. I would throw salt on it and just kind of eat it like like an apple. Yeah, I, I don't well, do it much anymore, but yeah, I used to do that quite a bit. Throw some ranch I, on it, you know. Interesting. I mean, they do, you know, in France, they call potatoes pommes de terres or apples of the earth. That's the literal translation. Mm-hmm. So, hey, you eat, you eat apples, you know, you just wash them a little bit and chomp down. So why not? Right. It's yeah, it's food. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, we are in episode seven of season two of Stranger Things entitled The Lost Sister. This episode is different in that I think most people consider it a pocket episode or an episode that feels a little bit disconnected from the rest of the season in some ways. I, as I like to do, looked on IMDb and was kind of shocked at him. Most of the episodes this season hover around a 9.1, 9.2. When we got to The Lost Sister, I saw 6.4 or 6.3 and I go, oh my gosh, uh, <laughs> is this skippable? <laughs> is this, does anything happen in this one? And I had some reservations going in. But before I give my thoughts, talk to me a little bit about, as someone who has seen the series without giving much away, why do you think this particular episode didn't work for a lot of people? I wonder if on IMDb, if there was a bit of review bombing going on because people felt like it was a bit of a bait and switch. Like here they are binging through season two and they're at the end of episode six, which had one of the best cliffhanger moments, you know, Hawkins Lab is about to be overrun by demodogs or and or demogorgons, we don't even know. And then you hit play, watch next, and then you cut to Eleven back to her storyline in her sort of journey of self-discovery after meeting her mother, Mama. And so we never leave that story in this episode. We never go back to Hawkins, except for maybe in some flashbacks or things that she has. So it's, I think maybe that's what it was. I think that people probably felt that this episode didn't deliver on the main storyline that they were excited to continue going down. But I think it does a lot of important things 
that this episode does a lot that it needed to do. It does further develop Elle. It helps prepare her for the ultimate decision that she has to go back to Hawkins to help her friends and her family and that that is her home now. So this this was important. I think it's an important part of her journey. And I just want to mention that I think I said this at the end of the last episode. This is the first episode directed by uh, Rebecca Thomas. It is her only Stranger Things directing credit. And when this season came out in 2017, her best known credit was directing an independent film called Electric Children, which I have to say I haven't seen. I looked it up. It sounds kind of interesting, and it has, a, I think, an 88% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, so it seems to have been well-regarded and well-received by critics, and clearly it impressed the Duffer Brothers to give her a chance to direct this episode. So I kind of want to go look at her earlier work and just kind of get a sense of where she came from, like how did, why did they bring her on board to direct this episode? But I don't think there's anything wrong with the episode. I think that as an expansion of the Stranger Things mythology, I think it's really invaluable. It tells us a lot more about the history of Hawkins Lab, and it definitely delivers. It just doesn't feel, like you said, it's uh, another term they use for these types of episodes are a capsule episode. And I think that for actors, these capsule episodes are an amazing opportunity because you really get to be the star of a show or of a short movie for an hour without a lot of other characters cutting into your screen time, right? In this case, this is the Eleven show. This is the Millie Bobby Brown showcase here. She's in it almost every scene for the entire, I think, 45-minute episode, where she was largely absent from a number of the earlier episodes in the series. So sometimes I wonder if these decisions are made, like the last episode she wasn't in at all, She wasn't in the first episode until the very, very end. And then throughout the remaining episodes, it's just kind of little sprinkles here and there of her kind of popping up. And so maybe this was a chance to kind of really give her some screen time to grow as a character. I agree with all that, Adam. And I'm going to just say this up front. I really like the episode. And I think some of it is partly due with the fact of the format that we're taking. When you're plowing through these episodes, this feels very jarring. We've gotten mythology, 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 mythology. And now we're in Chicago hanging out with comic book characters and we meet somebody with powers that we sort of got introduced to in the first episode. And then I imagine we're back into Hawkins and finishing the last two episodes pretty strong because they are at 9.1, 9.2. So watching this on a semi-weekly basis or more spread out allowed me to appreciate it on a bigger scale because of what you mentioned, this idea that Eleven hasn't gotten a lot of chance to spread her wings in this season. I feel like she could have it, and she did have it because of this episode. She's an important character in this series. Like She was a quintessential part of season one, and I don't think the Duffers forgot about her in the second season. I really do feel like there was intent with getting her to this point. As I was watching The Lost Sister and the way it begins, I was reminded of a conversation that we had when we discussed The Karate Kid on Feel and Film. I think you brought this piece of trivia to the conversation. At the end of The Karate Kid, there is two roads diverged in a wood, and we took the one less traveled by. Or, no, we didn't. We took the one more traveled by. There were two ways you could go, and I think the production team or the creative team had two options. And one became Karate Kid Part 2, and one became Karate Kid Part 3. So one followed Daniel and Mr. Miyagi going to Okinawa, 
fell in love with it. We got a brand new kind of the kata and the spikes going through sleeves of shirts. And it was great. And then we got Karate Kid 3, but we got there from that same moment where Miyagi going up against Kreese and making his fists bleed. Spoiler alert, this is 1980s. You should be watching this anyway. You should have seen it, so whatever. And this is what I felt like with The Lost Sister, where we got this great buildup and this great dramatic moment with Eleven and Mama and going through and seeing her thoughts and seeing how much trauma she was being dealt over and over and over again. And then we're left without anything. We're like, what? Okay. But I guess we were so enveloped as viewers with what else is happening in Hawkins that we didn't really mind that we didn't see, okay, what's going to happen to her now? And so we essentially do a Karate Kid 3 where we go back to the scene at the beginning of this episode and we see, okay, what happened to Eleven? And I think that's okay because we're always asking those questions. At the end of our last episode, we're like, where are Jonathan and Nancy going? Right, we know right. where some people are, but we didn't know where they were. We sort of know where the gang of folks from the junkyard are going. I think we, we believe we do. But Eleven is kind of cast out in a way that we're like, yeah, oh yeah. But we don't realize and we, we remember that, oh man, she had a really intense emotional moment. And this episode provides that breathing room for us to really explore that. There's discomfort in the fact that we've been living quite literally, in Hawkins for six episodes. So to leave that feels a little uncomfortable. Why are we going to Chicago? Why are we meeting these weird people? And when I got past that, when I really started to look at it as, okay, if I have a chance, instead of binging this, which is not bad, because obviously Netflix is sort of setting people up to do that by releasing all their episodes at once, but taking it one week at a time, if you were watching this on a weekly basis, it wouldn't feel that way, I don't think. Because you would have had time to digest, oh yeah, what about L? Okay, this will be kind of a fun episode. And there's criticism that I've read that it doesn't feel like a Stranger Things episode. I think it absolutely does. Because it's not localized to Hawkins may be a reason why. Because we're meeting characters that feel more comic book-esque than local flavor. Maybe that's another thing. But then I have to step back and go, guys, we're dealing with Demogorgons and the Upside Down. I mean, if we're, yeah. <laughs> these are, this is a comic book world we're living in, a fantasy world we're living in. Yeah. I understand the frustration. And if I were watching these back to back, it would feel so weird to leave Hawkins for an episode only to go back. And some people have criticized, and I think I would probably be on that same train of like, the point of this episode was to get Elle to change her mind about how she feels about her friends. But the way you tell the story matters. And I thought the way that this story was told did it feel predictable? Did it feel a little bit derivative? Yeah, in some ways, but it was entertaining. And the fact is, when it comes to storytelling, there's familiarity everywhere. And it's how you get there that I think matters. Could we say this is one of the weaker episodes? Probably. And I think that is in part due to the fact that we don't have the Mikes and the Dustins and the Hoppers and the Joyces, the ensemble cast that makes the show so amazing. If you had another episode surrounding Will Byers, the entire episode with nobody else that we're familiar with, I think we would have gotten the same kind of effect because we want those characters. We want to know what's happening with Dustin, what's happening with Hopper, what's happening at Hawkins Lab. None of those questions are asked. In fact, as I was going through the episode for my note-taking and I'm watching the credits roll, I'm going, not in this one, not in this one, not in this one. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> because it's really, it's the 11 show and that's okay. I will say this though, as a caveat, it's a great episode. I hope it doesn't get diminished if we don't ever go back to at least one or two of these characters later in the series. Because we get Kali, 
at the beginning. Mm -hmm. We get more of her in this episode. If we never see her again, that would feel like a cheat to me because that's like showing me the vibrating cup in Jurassic Park, (laughs) zooming in, but never showing me the dinosaur. If you're going to show me something that feels important and then you never show it to me again, Lost was very guilty of this. And I get frustrated with shows that do that, especially shows that center around mythology. This is a filmmaking technique that, when used effectively, can get you kind of mentally teased. If we never go back to this, I will probably have a varying opinion of this. But for right now, this episode, as it stands, related to season two, works for me. And there's a lot that we have to talk about, which we can go ahead and get into, unless you have anything else that I haven't, haven't hit on. The only thing though, uh, that I would add is that they could have chosen to intercut all of her scenes like they do with Nancy and Jonathan when they're at right. Murray's, you know, with yep. all the other things. Because it does happen concurrently, we're led to believe. And we'll get to this at the very end. You know, basically, she's seeing what's currently happening to both Mike and, uh, and Hopper. And it's like essentially the end of the last episode. So I think we're led to believe this is all happening at the same time as the last episode and so they could have chosen to do that it would have been an epic two hour long episode but they could have right they could have interwoven it so you're following those various threads maybe that would have been less jarring for people maybe they would have accepted it more i think they took a chance by saying no let's just take a pause from hawkins and let's go follow eleven's journey her hero's journey Let's see how she comes back stronger than ever and why. I think I also may have mentioned this, but it might have just been the timing of this episode if it had happened before the last episode. And that may not have worked story-wise, but if it had, it may have also been received better because you didn't have such a cliffhanger moment that people were just like, next, I got to see what happens. So that's, those, those are my final thoughts. <laughs> Yeah, I thought, let's, mm, you got me thinking now. If we had put this story as it is right now, right before the previous episode, that would have been interesting. And I think the Duffer brothers, had they done that, they would have shown us even less of what she's seeing in her vision. Because what we're seeing are little like fragments. We see Hopper saying, what's going on? What's going on? I think they would have omitted Mike saying, it's a trap. Or not. That could have been really interesting. Like, what's happening back in Hawkins? And then we rewind and get to to see how we get there in Hawkins. That actually could have been... Maybe we have to recommend to the Duffers that they reorder these episodes (laughs) in such a way, which they won't do. They came out very publicly recently saying that they will never alter any episodes. Like, they apparently fixed one little mistake, something to do with one of the characters' birthdays was incorrect on something very minor but they just wanted to correct they went they did a little george lucas and they decided (laughs) after there was a little bit of backlash about that even though it it was such a minor thing they kind of said no no we'll never censor or change anything even if it becomes you know an outdated you know how many so many shows now that are from the 70s or 80s they'll have a little disclaimer saying oh this is from a a different period and so the views don't reflect current you know not going to mess with the show they're just going to leave it and let history be the judge so to speak anyway i think it would be interesting just to to watch it and maybe we can do this go back and rewatch like episode five 
six and seven, but reorder it so five, seven, six, and see if it if it works. See if it's if it's as effective or something could feel really off that way, but it it might yeah. it might work. But regardless, I think the episode itself as it stands is good. Yeah. I think it hits all the right notes for me. I told you offline it was solid. The fact I that I actually stayed up and watched it was kind of amazing. It was, even though it wasn't like <laughs> one of the better ones, but it kept my attention. And there was a lot here that felt it was just good storytelling. I think it right. was maybe in relationship to what we've been used to the last six episodes, not so much. Again, because I think placement in the order and placement mm-hmm. in terms of geography affect that and placement in terms of one person versus like six or seven. All those things are legitimate factors, but having that separation, having a few days between when one episode is watched and then the next one, in this case, six and seven, that really did make the episode feel stronger to me. Yeah. And it's an expansion of the Stranger Things universe in that way. I think I like this because we're getting a chance to see, oh, this world, this universe is a lot more than just one town and one group of kids. There's a lot more going on here. And now we're starting to get a little taste of what else is happening in terms of characters with these supernatural powers or abilities. Yeah. So yeah. I, I like that. I, and again, it maybe it's not as up there with some of the best episodes we've seen so far, as you mentioned, but it's still far better than a lot of other shows that I've seen. So it's one of those things, like on a scale within the Stranger Things universe, it's it may be one of the the episodes that ranks a little bit lower, but it's still, I think, better than a six point, I think, what did you say, 6.9, 6.3? 6. 6.1. 6.1. No, I mean, it's it's at least a 7.5 for me, I would say, yeah. at least, or maybe an eight. I mean, it just depends on kind of how you're grading it in comparison to the other episodes. Well, let's go right to All right. the thick of it, man. So we start yeah, with that yeah. cold open, and we're revisiting the connection experience between Eleven and Mama, that's how I'm going to refer to those two. Then there's the debrief with Becky. So this is the new stuff. So we got Mm -hmm. all the craziness that we experienced before, and then we get this really nice conversation. And apparently Eleven concludes that Mama wants her to find this other girl in the rainbow room. Becky's interesting here. I forget that Becky is related to her. I don't remember the last name. but Her aunt, I guess, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah. But she she gives her last name in the phone call later, and I forgot that they were related from uh, from last season when uh, Joyce and Hopper came and visited her. After that conclusion, they uh, they look through these files, and Elle recognizes that through a bunch of newspaper clippings, we see that there are several kids that have been taken yeah. to Hawkins' lab. And at this point, we don't know if they all have powers or if these powers... And it, at this point, I think even last season, we were asking the question, were these powers given to them? Were they enhanced because of psychotropic drugs? I don't think right. we know. Right. I'm going to go ahead and make the assumption that these are innate powers that they've harnessed. I, I would agree with you there, especially because I paused and tried to read some of the, the newspaper clippings. And the one said, vanished Indian girl missing in London. And then in smaller print, it says something about the girl's disappearance shines a light on the growing epidemic of the many thousands of children under the age of 18 reported missing this year in the UK. That (laughs) says something. This program could be much bigger because my question is, 
how did this London, this Indian girl from London get into Brenner's care, right? Yeah. Unless there are branches of Hawkins Laboratory all over, you know, not Hawkins, but of this government agency yeah. all over the world, kind of like the CIA, right? Where they have mm-hmm. their little on-site offices in, in different countries. And yeah. maybe they said, oh, this one needs to, we're going to send this one to Brenner. He knows what to do with her, you know, something like that. They see that she has some ability that needs to be under supervision. <laughs> right. I think if there was a facility in the UK, it would be called Sir Hopkins Lab instead of uh, Hawkins. <laughs> yeah. It's the UK version. <laughs> yes, definitely. Sir Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> Sir Anthony Hopkins Lab, where all the crazy kids go. That's right. Like but thousands drugs. of children, it says, and that's in that article. So now they may not all be connected to this program, but still, that's a lot of missing kids in one year uh-huh. to go missing. Yeah. To go missing. So I didn't even know about that. I was even. I don't know if I was born then or whatever. But <laughs> sorry, <laughs> the things that happen it's in not, small towns. It's I was not real. About. It's not, it's, oh, yeah, that's right. Sorry. <laughs> it's a back show. to reality. Sorry. It's a show. Yeah. It's a show. Thank you, Adam, for bringing me back. <laughs> <laughs> Ella attempts to f- try to track this girl and she fails. But what's interesting, I picked this up. I picked up on this uh, throughout the episode. While she's laying on the bed, she has another vision and she finds her. This actually repeats a few times. And I feel like maybe this is going to be part of her growth is that she doesn't need the static. She doesn't need the bandana to the face covering. She just needs to be calm. She needs to be at peace. Because the times that she was able to find this girl, the times that she was able to tap back into Hopper and Mike and everything that was going on at the lab, she wasn't using a cover. She wasn't using a radio static. So I feel like her powers, one of the powers that she has, is starting to get a little bit more autonomous where she doesn't need an assist, which is kind of reinforced in the episode about making her more powerful. Right. As we'll talk about later. And I think that's really interesting. It's an interesting kind of a growth development that we're seeing with her. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, like her training wheels are coming off. (laughs) Yeah, essentially. (laughs) Didn't know she had them, but apparently she did. Well, like the sensory sensory depredation tank was kind of her training wheels. She needed that to help her tap into that power. But as you said, as she's doing it more and more, she is able to do it with fewer and fewer tools to aid her. Yeah. And it's being triggered by emotion. I think that's a big thing that's kind of being picked up in this episode is that the way in which she's able to tap into and find folks is driven by some motivation that's emotionally driven. And so she goes to tell Becky, but as she's going into the kitchen, she hears her talking to someone named Florence. I don't know if that means anything. Uh, we have. I think it's Flo. I think that's short. That's the full name of Flo. Oh, that's right. At the police station. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so then she takes some money and heads off to find her sister, her quotes there. Yeah. And then right before the opening credits, we get this amazing shot of her mom repeating, you know, the mantra that she has and the camera pushes into this great TV channel graphic, channel eight, which tells us, okay, she's going to find eight. Here we go. Uh, We're going to go revisit the girl from, from episode one that can apparently make people see stuff that's not really there, which is in some ways a scarier power than L's. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what yeah. would be worse to, to be thrown at is hers or L's, but I think that's yeah. up for debate. Uh, and it was kind of cool seeing on the graphic, there was that kind of 
classic 80s laser grid field behind it. And I was like, oh, I just love that feel. Yeah. It's so, so vintage 80s. They loved lasers <laughs> and grids back then. <laughs> they did. They did, really. So after the opening credits, which nobody was in, we get to the bus. <laughs> but they were contractually obligated to have listed yes. regardless. <laughs> How funny would that be yeah. if the credits just said, Stranger Things, and then that's it. <laughs> it just says Millie Bobby Brown and a bunch of other supporting actors <laughs> a bunch that of you've new never people. seen of or heard of before. <laughs> so weird. That would be so amazing, though. Anyway, so she starts seeing more in her vision as she's on the bus. Uh, I thought this was this whole scene was a fantastic use of Bon Jovi's Runaway, so appropriate. One of the questions I had, Adam, is how does she know that it's Chicago? I'm guessing we don't see all the visions that she does, so maybe she sees like some buildings that she recognizes, maybe maybe a sign that says, you know, 10 miles to Chicago. But nowhere in the visions that we see is there an indication that this girl is in Chicago. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, the only thing I can think of is that part of her ability in, in sort of tracking or locating is that she can sort of feel where she needs to go, kind of she, almost like a magnetism, like she's drawn towards something and that she may have been able to kind of pinpoint, maybe looking on a map, where she generally needs to go. And then as she gets closer, maybe part of her abilities allows her to kind of hone in closer and closer, kind of like a predator, like a dog would do, right? Hunting, mm -hmm. you know, for okay. its prey. I'm just guessing yeah. here. I mean, they don't, they don't explain it. They don't show it all, but there's clearly a lot more to her abilities than we fully have been told and or that we understand at this point. Yeah. I think you're right. I think there's some kind of like emotional tug that she's got where she feels kind of a stronger presence, kind of like a metal detector where she's just kind of right. feeling a, maybe a magnetic force of some kind. Yeah, we didn't get any kind of indications. We were just like, okay, you're in Chicago. That's cool. And then she gets off the bus. I love her expressions here, Adam. She's yeah. smiling one minute because I think she's like in this big city and then she's pensive another because she sees the cops. And then this man runs into her and says, watch it. And what does she say? Now, Frida. Yeah. <laughs> She's just taking cues from Mike and the gang. Yep. <laughs> mean people are called mouth. And I like that they chose Chicago and it kind of makes sense because of, I mean, here we are in the mid eighties and as we all know, Chicago had become a really hot location for shooting a lot of teen comedies and dramas back in the 80s. You know, you had everything from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where Chicago is a character in the movie the breakfast club shot in chicago adventures in babysitting they're like all over chicago at night Love risky business was chicago so yeah there's so many films all those john hughes movies as well we, i mentioned a few of them were all filmed in chicago so it's kind of a nice nod i feel like to choose chicago because these characters were in pittsburgh in the beginning of the first episode in Pennsylvania. So they could have gone to New York. They could have done anything, right? They chose Chicago, and I think it makes sense. It's a nice, it's also closer for Elle in terms of mm -hmm. busing it up there versus um, yeah. going all the way to LA or to New York. But right. I, 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 I liked it. I, I, I felt like it was a conscious decision mm -hmm. to pick Chicago as the city that she goes to. Yeah, I, th I think so too, and for those, those exact reasons. Was Lost in New York in Chicago? No, that was New York. No. That's different. What's the um, L.A. story? Was that L.A. story? The L.A. Steve story, Martin I think, was. That, was, yeah. that was Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. I think. The <laughs> Sorry. <Yeah. laughs> 
I think all those Dirty Harry films were in Chicago. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> if you're still listening, thank you. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, and uh, Star Trek Four when they go back in time to, to San Francisco, that was shot in that, Chicago. That yeah. was in Chicago, too. <laughs> <laughs> Everything in the 80s was in Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> and Home Alone. But that's really was. But that's how they come out. Chicago. <laughs> yeah. Now we're back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness so i guess her powers lead her throughout the city where she's not just lost in the city she goes to an alley some homeless guy says they're dead <laughs> they're all dead they're all dead that was weird we never go back to him is that foreshadowing like does he know something that we don't know he or might. that l doesn't know like just and why did he say to l <laughs> And so I have a theory here. I have a theory. What if all these homeless, not all of them, what if some of these homeless people in the Stranger Things universe, what if, or maybe in our universe, what if they're, they act crazy because they actually have powers or abilities, but they've never been able to sort of grapple with them, deal with them, figure them out. And so they are sort of shunned by society, disowned by their parents. And so they, they go down that rabbit hole where they turn to drugs and alcohol to deal with whatever they, you know, listen, if you're seeing visions of spiders on people's arms, like, yeah, I mean, that's going to mess you up. So, right. and they end up becoming homeless and then they're just crazy people, but maybe they're not. Maybe they just don't know how to control or use their powers. Great theory. Adam. So I think Brenner needs to collect all the homeless people up and see <laughs> if they have any, have any abilities. Brenner's dead, Adam. Brenner's oh, that's dead. Right. Brenner's ghost needs to- Brenner's- <laughs> oh, right <man. laughs> uh, yeah Brenner's ghost can do anything because Brenner can do anything he's got this he's might got be a touch. good idea for a movie i'll just have to say where the homeless population <laughs> that like one percent of the homeless population turns out to be people with abilities that have never been fully understood and hmm. so a secret organization starts testing the homeless to see if they have any powers Man, that sounds really intriguing. Like I'm I'm seriously going, <laughs> could this be a series? What would we call it? Or what would you call it? I would help I don't know. Get that together. I don't know. This would be cool. Okay. I, I can't Sorry. tell. I have got to we'll keep put that, that on the back under, burner. Under yeah. wraps. If if you're listening, don't steal that idea, please. <laughs> <laughs> and if you do steal it, ten percent royalties is fine. We'll just do whatever. Yeah, if someone wants to run with it, just pay me a little bit of yeah. money every time. It airs we got to keep the lights on here. Streams. At, yeah. At AOS. <laughs> <laughs> so after she gets through the uh, the homeless alley there of, uh, of homeless people, she finally finds the hideout. And uh, this is a classy looking bunch right here, Adam. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mentioned comic books. These guys are straight out of a comic book. Like if you were to really illustrate yeah. them, this would be the group. And I think that's one of the things that I thought was really charming about the episode was just how they all looked. I thought this feels very much like what you would expect as a kid who lives in a small town, what you would expect city people to look like the deviants with the spiked hair. And I thought that was really appropriate. And it's a cool looking crew. There's actually one shot later on of them talking to her and it looks like something out of suicide squad. Like they're ready to go just take people down, but they all look so different. They feel like they're just different components of this of this gang yeah and uh, it it's cool well i don't know if you ever saw the movie the warriors or not it's from the early 80s but it's about 
these all these various gangs in New York. And if that movie is even close to what it was like in New York City or in a major city in the early 80s, then these characters are spot on. You know, they look just like what gang members of inner cities are supposed to look like. But I don't know if that movie was that accurate. But I do like the hideout. I do like the, the yeah. kind of classic 80s warehouse hangout where, you know, big open spaces drenched in neon with graffiti everywhere. And like they're using an old oil drum basically as a fireplace to warm yep. up the building. They have a Coke machine in there. It's just kind of a cool place to hang out. <laughs> yeah. It reminded me a lot of um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the yes. 1990s. Yep. The shredder layer with all the fun stuff like yeah, the arcade yeah. games and this in- yeah. indoor skate park. And uh, yeah, everyone's yeah. just like eating fast food and smoking yeah. and playing <laughs> like violent video games. It was like the <laughs> worst nightmare of any, you know, 80s parent. parent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but like every kid's just, like dream like, man, that's where I want to go. And this was just amped up to 11 because these are yeah. all folks that don't have 11. parents. So. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No pun intended there. Yeah. I didn't even try for that one. <laughs> she walks in and we meet Axe. He calls her Shirley Temple, which I thought was cool because it kind of sticks with her the rest of the episode calling her Shirley. Don't call me Shirley. Maybe that was another in joke there. <laughs> but after he confronts her on how she found them, the imaginary spiders come out. And that's when we get to see Kali's power on full display i believe her name is it's they call her call or is it cal i can't i'm gonna go back and forth in the episode i apologize but i think it's collie is her official name and they call her call i think i think you're right yeah and so the big moment of connection for her and l is when l reveals her power by taking axel's knife with her mind she shows her her number sister sister and then a hug and then we're off to the races with kind of getting integrated into this uh this gang world the next scene puts us on the roof Ella's recapping really what she saw in mama's memory when i watch this i see how callie callie cal i'll call her cal because it's like hello makes better um i see how she is able to in general throughout the episode gently manipulate l but it's really interesting to watch because it's for altruistic purposes. It's not just for her. Like she's getting something out of this, but at the same time, she also is trying to do good. And there are little pockets of conversations that really affirm that for me. I never feel like Cal is trying to just add to her arsenal that she really sees connective tissue with Elle because they were both children in the rainbow room. Mm-hmm. And so she validates Elle's gift and then shows her gift to Elle. I loved, loved that moment where she shows her the butterfly that's not really there in neon. And she says, think of it as a kind of magic. And that's a great way to think of it. And then Elle looks at her and she says, are you real? And they both smile and they're, you know, she's poking her in the, in the <laughs> cheek. It's just, it's just a really intimate moment between sisters. Yeah. Where yeah. they both are sort of saying, oh, wow, I didn't think that I would ever see someone like me again. Like they both knew that they were out there. Well, Cal did. Elle didn't. So I think for both of them, there's this really great revelation, reunion. All these emotions are really stirring here, and it creates this great tender moment up there. Yeah, I think especially for Eleven, she she needs someone to understand her and from like her point of view so badly at this point. As much as Hopper and and you know Joyce in the first season and and Mike have all cared for her and helped her, 
they don't really understand what she's been through. And Callie has been through what she's been through, maybe more for all we know. She was, uh, she's clearly a little older, so we don't know when she escaped or, or if she, was she let go? Um, That's another whole question. Like, how did she even get out of it? As far as we know, up until this point, Eleven is the only person ever to have escaped Brenner's, let's say, his care, (laughs) right? So that's a whole nother question that this episode does not, unfortunately, answer. We don't find out how she escaped or how she moved on. And I'm not quite sure how old she is, but she's definitely older based on the flashbacks. She's clearly an older girl than Eleven was in those scenes. Yeah, she does reveal to Elle that when her powers developed, she was able to escape, but it didn't indicate Maybe that's how, just right. that she was able to. Now, when we get to the escape sequence with the gang, when the police are coming in, yeah. we can probably insinuate that some of the techniques she used there were probably used in her ability to escape right. Hawkins' lab. But uh, then the episode moves downstairs to what I'm calling Elle's hideout bedroom. She gets this great mm-hmm. kind of... I don't know what the intent was, but I thought it was really cool that she got a like a bright orange blanket. The bright color, I think, is, is really neat. And then Callie gets emotional. Nothing is broke. I just feel whole. Now, like, a piece of me was missing. And now it's not. I think the performance here is really great because... She's not just showing you tears, but you when people cry, when they're genuinely crying, they literally get stuffy in the nose. And you can hear in her delivery that she's getting stuffy. And it's like, wow, yeah. she's really starting to get swollen with emotion. And she says, I think your mother said you have a reason. I think she somehow knew that we belong together. I think this is your home. Home. Now, I want to hold there because this is contrasted later on. It's one of two moments that I I saw got amazingly con- contrasted. Like it's just kind of like this bookended thing that was happening and we'll come back to that. But such a great extension of that intimacy that we see on the roof that I think is is just kind of enhanced here in this particular scene. Yeah. They both clearly need each other and have been, whether they knew it or not, they've been looking for each other their whole lives. And I think you can imagine or see that this is the beginning of of a beautiful relationship. As far as they both can tell, they've come home to each other. And this is just the beginning stages of their bonding and being sisters. The episode obviously takes us in a different direction but clearly if things were different i think they would have stayed together and we'll get into that more yeah and so callie goes downstairs and convinces the gang that they need to use her and her powers to kill the bad people as l calls them she even says quote she needs this again i feel like that's a little bit manipulative but only halfway because i feel like callie is seeing more of herself in l and then we move back up to Elle's room and we're back in this dream state where she hears Hopper's message on that radio recorder. And there's this great jump scare <laughs> that wakes her up. So again, we're getting that reinforcement that when she's relaxed, when she's allowed to dream, she doesn't need a deprivation tank. She doesn't need a face covering. 
or blindfold. I could not think of the word blindfold. <laughs> I kept saying face <laughs> right. covering, head covering, something covering the eyes, a blindfold, but she doesn't need that or she's starting to not need that. We're in the next morning and Callie brings her down to meet the gang. <laughs> so we see it's Axel, who's the spider hater. We have Dottie, who is the newest and just left home. Mick, the eyes or protector. These are really interesting names and titles that Callie has given to each of these people. And then there's my favorite. There's Funshine, the warrior, but he's very gentle. And I like how he introduces himself to her. He puts out his big hand and he says, nice to meet you, Miss Jane. Calls her by her name. And then she looks at his hand and turns it over. And Callie says, you won't find that on him. And that's when we start getting her understanding of the fact that not all outcasts are formerly from Hawkins Lab, that they are outcasts, that they are sort of bonded by Callie's connection, which makes me kind of wonder the comic books and stuff that you sent me that I haven't haven't read because I don't want spoilers. I wonder if there's right. some stuff in there about this gang, if there's anything that's not after this episode. I, I want to know more about that origin story, about how they all got together and you know, what is Axel's story? What's Dottie's story? Because we only get little bits. And yeah. by the end of the episode, we don't get much more than what we've been revealed by Callie and the members themselves. Yeah, I won't tell you what's in them, but I'll just say that they do tell little tertiary stories that are canon and are connected to the main TV series, but they're not super important stories. They just kind of expand the sort of mythology or expand the universe a little bit in, in sort of a fun way. So you can kind of revisit gotcha. the uh, Stranger Things world, but without the writers of these comics and books aren't going to dig too deep or change anything major. That's up to the show to do. So I'm sure there's a lot of restrictions and things on what they can and can't cover, but they can flesh things out a little bit more in the kind of mm -hmm. surrounding universe. Yeah. The scene also serves as sort of a recruiting tactic by Callie and everybody. Mm -hmm. She um, she tells Al that they go after the people that hurt her and Al, and probably others. And she says they killed them, quote, because... They're criminals. We simply make them pay for their crimes. There's something about her accent that I think makes this delivery so good. It's that dialect that is not American. <laughs> I think if it were coming from Dustin <laughs> or from... Steve or something, it wouldn't have that same kind of effect. I just, I love her voice in this episode. Yeah. And um, there's lots of Hawkins National Laboratory badges in there and one Pittsburgh PA driver's license, which makes perfect sense from the opening of the first episode of the season. So those little details yep. are nice. And just yeah. to see that, again, production design, mm -hmm. set design, they're, they're, every little thing is uh, there for a reason. And they do a Very good job of it. Yeah. 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 And then Elle shares that she's actually killed as well. We get those flashbacks of her in season one where she's done that. And she says, I'm a fighter. I've killed. And so Callie takes her outside to see how her powers work. And so she gets her to move this giant train car. And at first she can't. But then she shows Elle how she can use the anger inside of her to harness her power. So as she's going through these thoughts we get flashbacks of all the negative stuff hopper yelling at her visions of mike and max semi-flirting with one another uh, very much effective in that in that moment and she does she moves the train car the gang celebrates and callie asks how do you feel and Elsa says, good yeah it was kind of an empire strikes back moment you know with Yoda it really was 
saying, yeah. lift your X-Wing fighter out of the swamp. And, <laughs> but Luke couldn't do it. That's the only difference yeah. is, you know, Yoda ends up doing it, of course. Yeah. So Tally is Yoda in this analogy. and <laughs> Sort of, because she, didn't, she yeah, didn't move because, the train. Because Tally didn't end up doing it. It, it would have been yeah. a complete ripoff if Tally was like, fine, I'll do it. And she just uses her <laughs> imaginary powers to make it look like she moved the train closer. <laughs> <laughs> Callie, don't be a cop out. Yeah. But <laughs> which makes her better than Yoda. Right. But there is something to say <laughs> to all anybody with a skill or a talent needing someone, a coach or someone to train them, help them. And for good or bad, Brenner was that for a long time, right? Helping to make her stronger and hone her skills. Now she doesn't have anybody like that. So maybe Tally is just what she needs, someone to give her encouragement and help her focus her efforts to getting better at what she's doing. Because I don't think Elle's really... Right. I mean, you we see occasional shots of her like using her powers or trying to do something a little bit harder than she's done before, but she's not actively like training for the... Uh, paranormal the, Olympics? Yeah, the paranormal... <laughs> I was going to say Special Olympics, but that wasn't appropriate, so... <laughs> Super, super powered Olympics. Supernatural Olympics. The yeah, there you go. <laughs> the upside down Olympics, something like that. <laughs> anyway. Bob Costas in the upside down. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Speaking of trains, we're getting derailed. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so the uh, episode then moves inside. They basically kind of give her all the deets about what they're doing. I think we get more shots of those uh, badges. I think Callie says, the bad men know about us. It's made them hard to track, but maybe not anymore. And then they use Elle's radar. Yeah, they call her a human radar detector, I think. Yeah, I think, yeah, I can't remember who called, I think Axel calls her that or somebody does. But her radar finds them. And as uh, she's getting a makeover, (laughs) which I think is pretty epic. I love her look. There's this really great music in this scene. And I got to tell you, I actually queued up Stranger Things 2 soundtrack on Spotify. Mm. I need to reread, but I believe this music was actually not original to the series. I think it was music that was used in a deleted scene from Escape from New York. So I need to go back and listen to the music and I need to cross-reference that because I love the music here. It was so cool. Very appropriate. John Carpenter did the music for Lost in, uh, from Escape in New York. I'm now getting it wrong myself from the movie <laughs> Escape from New York, the Kurt Russell movie. So not only did he direct the film, but he did the music. So that would be interesting if they picked up a unused track and incorporated it into this episode. I, I liked it too. I was totally into it. Yeah. The music used when Eleven, Callie, and the gang are preparing to leave to find Ray is from the deleted bank heist scene from Escape from New York, composed by John okay. Carpenter. So I'm yeah, thinking, I've seen clips of that it. scene on like a DVD release, but it was always just no score. It was just, a, it was basically a whole scene where we find out how and why Kurt Russell's character was in prison. We see the crime that he commits and it obviously was unnecessary to show. Yeah. Well, that's, that's cool. I don't want to misinterpret it. This may be different music. Again, I'd have to go back and watch the episode because I think the yeah. music does change. 
as they're leaving and they do that great kind of slow walk shot, like something right. out of Reservoir Dogs. And then Elle is getting more comfortable with hanging out with them. She looks like them. They're in the van. They're having fun. Everything's like in this fun slow-mo. It's like, this is like 80s rock party, whatever. Yeah. And then we uh, we roll into the gas station and I knew it was going to happen. I was like, oh gosh, don't kill people, please. And this is a great move. Callie goes in and makes the clerk think that his bathroom is flooded. And I love the blocking here with the clerk because clearly for us as an audience, we know that it's not flooding, but also for the actor, like he's got to do, I think they've got, <laughs> right. he's got to act like he sees that it's flooding. And he says, oh, yes. and then um, throughout that whole scene, everybody's getting their own kind of stuff. I think Axel gets some money, Funshine gets some beer, Elle gets, of course, some Eggos, and then Dottie, I think, gets a fly swatter and some sunglasses. And I think some Tampax as well. Does she get some tampons? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well. Yeah. yeah. This was their, uh, I think they call it the supermarket sweep. Yes. That's what one of them says. Yeah. And it, I think this is something they do a lot because he says, let the supermarket sweep begin. So it sounds like a, a reoccurring outing that they have, which, listen, if you have those abilities, why not? Right. Right. And then they're at Ray Carroll's apartment where Ray is uh, watching Punky Brewster which I don't remember it being on in primetime. So maybe it's a rerun. Um, I don't think it's a rerun, but I think I remember it being on when it first came out in like 84, it was on NBC. I remember that. And, it, you know, later on in the later eighties, I remember it was still on in primetime. I remember, but it was also frequently on syndication as well. So it was a show our family watched. My sister really liked it. And when you have one TV, unlike today, you yeah. all kind of watch the same shows. So. <laughs> but yeah, I think, it, I, I think it was. I think it was on like okay. 8 o'clock on, I forget what night. I just remember it was on, it was NBC. I don't know why, but networks, we only had three of them back then. So yep. you kind of remembered what shows were on which networks for some reason. <laughs> it really stuck with you because you had to know what channel to turn the TV to. And then so. what to adjust the rabbit ears to. Because sometimes <laughs> you right. get... NBC better than you get ABC and sometimes you get right. ABC better than CBS. And then if you were lucky, you got that fourth magic station of like AETN or channel 10, I think was for us. It was what became uh, TV 38. The, the mystery one that had all the great cartoons You're like, Oh my gosh, I hope the reception's great on Saturday morning. <laughs> right. Yeah. There were a few others that were good as well, but the, the big three of course were until I think 89 is when Fox 88 or 89 Fox came out and had their, then we got married with children and oh gosh yeah. simpsons gosh yeah took over man yep and then disney took over them and yeah. here we are <laughs> everything's disney <laughs> except stranger things that's netflix cool that's all right, right. <laughs> so inside the apartment some really interesting things happening here funshine says sit down but he says please after it which makes perfect sense because he's a teddy bear but I love his pose, like this A-frame in the doorway yeah. to make sure that like nobody's getting out. Like a bouncer. So, yeah. He is so kind of intimidating. His body shape is so intimidating. And then L, these three words that just stick right with me. You hurt mama. And I think this was Callie's power. They look at Ray and they say, do you recognize us? And he goes, no. And then the lights flicker goes dark and then we see the child forms of them i guess that's part of her power too is to make 
him see younger versions of themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think she can make anyone see anything. So if she wants him to see them as children when he would have last seen them, I'm, I guess she can do that. It's, uh, yeah. it's within her abilities. So Elle tosses him with her powers into the wall, knocks some sheetrock off. He's pleading with them, and he says this really interesting line at him. He says, I can help you find Brenner. And I'm like, yep. what? No, 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 no. Don't do this to me. Don't add any more mystery to my world of Stranger Things. And at this point, I don't know if he's lying. I don't know if this is a MacGuffin for us, if it's a MacGuffin for Elle, but she's convinced he's dead. He's dead. <laughs> Just I'm kind of left in like a, a stupor because as we'll get to later on, while he's not real, he's, he shows up in in a vision. And I'm like, what are you doing to us, Duffer Brothers? Are you are you trying to convince me that that Brenner's not dead? Because I'm starting to feel like he's not. And so yeah. ambiguity. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very ambiguous. Yeah, she says, I think Elle says, Papa is gone. And he says, yeah. No, he is alive. And he says it in such a like, I'm not I'm not just trying to save my life here. Like, I know he's alive. So clearly yeah. somewhere in the last year between the events that occurred where we saw the Demogorgon pounce on him and now he claims to have still been working with him or at least seen him. Yeah. Food for thought. Yeah. I'm not hungry. Okay. I'm not hungry. <laughs> <laughs> so she starts choking him like Darth Vader style and then she sees... A picture of his kids and at the same time we forget oh yeah Axel and Dottie are basically raiding the apartment with the money from the wallet and the pills and all this stuff you know Dottie of course right. is just going to take anything because she's a schizo coming from some crazy place and they see that he has two daughters and they're kind of huddled in the corner and they're calling the cops and they're calling the all like all call hey we got to get out of here Callie meanwhile is getting frustrated with Elle because she's not killing him she stops Callie pulls the gun out and what does Elle do with her mind she knocks it through the window and then here come the cops and <laughs> so now it gets crazy so then we're outside this was kind of a powerful line for me Callie says if you wanted to show mercy that is your choice but don't you ever take away mine ever do you understand do you understand I think that ever really kind of hit the point home because you could tell it wasn't just about killing people. It was about this vendetta that she has. Like she has been so hyper-focused on taking folks out that again, she recognizes, she says, you can have mercy, but don't ever decide what I consider merciful ever. Again, there's this really great dichotomy with her where she, she's two people. She recognizes, she never tells L that she's forced to stay there. She never badmouths Hopper as the cop that's taking care of her. She recognizes her situation and she's providing what she sees as a better way. And she also admits that it's good for her. You know, she's found her sister. I don't know that I remember a character like that who isn't, quote, a bad guy or who's a bad guy, but is really kind of justifiably trying to do good things in an immoral way. I think that's what makes these sort of anti-heroes what they right. are, is that when they convince us that they are actually doing good, even though their methods are not at all what we would agree with, I think she really embodies this anti-hero in a way that makes me feel this kind of empathy for her. And that scene, right. that moment, I think really cinched it for me where she was 
duly recognizing that mercy is a an option. It's just not the one that she will ever have. Yeah, it's like she has a code, kind of like if you ever saw the show Dexter, you know, where he has his code of how and when he'll kill somebody, but it's only if they're bad people. And otherwise, he's a good guy. Like, he won't, he won't hurt anybody. So that's a common theme in these anti-hero characters where through their own trauma, they've developed a code of what they w- are willing to do. But if someone, in this case, L, tries to take away that choice, then they're not going to have it. You know, she's finally living in a way where she's in charge of her own destiny. You know, she was essentially an, a prisoner at the lab. So she's finally free and she's in charge of her own choices and where if she makes a mistake, it's on her, but she's not going to ever let anyone else make those choices for her again. Yeah. And that sort of gets expanded on in the next scene at the hideout where Cal and Ellie are, Callie and Eleven, not Cal and Ellie. Those are two different people apparently. But these two, <laughs> these two sisters are having a heart to heart. And Callie's really justifying why she does what she does. She wanted a family and she wanted a home and that she tried all these things and that they just didn't work. So eventually she just had to accept the fact that she is who she is. And this is what her mission is, as you're kind of alluding to. It's really jaded and I'm sympathetic towards that, but it's definitely very jaded. What's coming up is the one moment I feel like Callie just steps over the line with Elle in terms of trying to convince her because this is now manipulation. She actually uses a vision of Brenner to try to convince Elle to, quote, confront her pain. It's a great performance by by Matthew Modine, even if he is a ghost or a vision. I think he still pulls off a performance very well, <laughs> even as a ghost or a vision. But yeah, he tells her to confront her pain. And, and that's just so wrong <laughs> because she knows that's not him. Now, right. is it truthful? I think it is. I think there's some truth in what he's saying or what Callie's saying through him. But needless to say, it frustrates Elle. And she says, and she yells, Here I like where I like that Callie is is giving her a choice. She says she can go home. She can go back to to her uh, police friend and and her friends there. Or she could stay, but you know she's kind of leaning towards one way, which is kind of funny. But again, I I feel like there's this, while it's a hesitating choice, it still is a choice. Like if I were really trying to manipulate somebody, I wouldn't give them that option. I wouldn't even try to hold them to that. All this time while this is happening, nobody is seeing that the police are getting ready to raid the the gang house there. (laughs) Yeah. And they have a, if you saw in that first shot, they have a police scanner. So you would think somewhere, or maybe not, maybe when you have a raid like that, maybe you don't broadcast it on your police scanner. Perhaps I'm not, uh, I've never been a, a Chicago policeman. But I will say that they made a big mistake in that they parked there, what I'm calling the A-team van that they drive around yeah. in, right yeah. outside when they have a huge warehouse space just pull it inside and park it inside so that you know no one can tip off the police and where you parked but yeah clearly not thinking really practically just thinking about the immediate needs and about winning poker or not winning poker or getting manipulated with poker (laughs) or getting getting pills from random people that you're trying to kill you know if anybody if it's anybody's responsibility it's mix i mean she's the eyes she's the protector so she she should know she was distracted at the moment. She was keeping an eye out. So I have to say that sure. they did have a lookout. And I think that's her power, if you will. She's the eyes, so. right? Yeah. So, so she got. She's also the she wheel man, away. I think, right? Is she the uh, wheel man yeah, too? I think she does drive too. She drives yeah. the, uh, the A-team van. Yeah. 
before we get the big kind of raid, we go back up to Elle. She's by herself and she's holding the shirt that she was wearing when she got there. And she starts remembering all the good stuff that made her happy. And that's where she sees scenes where Mike is like, you saved me. And Dustin's like, don't you mess with us. We got a, we got a weapon right here. And even moments with Hopper. And so she's starting to kind of understand, you know what? I do have a good life there. And the music is just kind of reinforcing that. It's, it's really kind of cool. And then she has this another vision of what was happening at the end of the last episode. And this is, you know, this is, I thought one of my favorite parts, because I'm like, oh my gosh, no deprivation tank, of course, no blindfold, mm -hmm. using the emotion to channel her friends. And she starts seeing, oh my gosh, my friends need me. This is, you know, right out of the Empire Strikes Back playbook where Luke's seeing visions of people being hurt. We don't see those visions, but right. we, we, we can get that. And that to me is a direct nod to, to Empire. I mean, we've seen oh, the, yeah. with the with the hand. There's some great Star Wars references in this episode. Yeah. And if Callie had said, like, you're, no, you're not ready. You're not ready to go. Then it would be, again, right on the nose. But it, yeah. was, uh, it, was, it was subtle. <laughs> but, uh, you know, anytime I think you have a movie or a show where there's a character, like, discovering their abilities and being trained, like, you can't help but look back at Empire because of Yoda. It, it's all there. I would say it's probably the first training montage, but that would go to Rocky. Rocky has the yeah. first official training montage. I think you're right. In 1977. Right. So, yeah. Sorry, Empire. It's a good close second. Maybe a distant second. <laughs> there. So she's interrupted because she hears a siren or she hears yelling, and then the raid starts. I love how they get out of the hideout. Callie makes the gang essentially disappear, and the the blocking is is great with the policemen and them. The camera work is so fantastic because I feel like they're, I mean, if they feel them, I mean. That's that, what I was going to say. Yeah. I Actually, when she first did it, I thought, well, they're going to walk right into them and then notice that there's somebody standing there. They just can't see them. But they were, yeah. they did a good job of showing their point of view mm -hmm. where they're kind of leaning back a little bit or leaning forward so that they don't touch them. So they're just kind of trying to make sure they don't bump into them at all. But it was a really cleverly shot sequence. Even better, though, I thought, was when they get outside and they get in the van. Yeah. They're, being, they're kind of pinned down by gunfire. And Callie just erects this like steel wall up to the sky. It's like insane. And the, the expression yeah. on the cops' faces is, <laughs> is priceless. They're like, what is happening right now? It's just... Yeah, it was pretty epic the way that kind of low angle shot where you could you look up at the steel wall and then you see the stars. It's just, yeah, it was a great, really great scene. And this is, of course, where Elle makes a choice not to go with the mm -hmm. gang. And she wants to go back. She has to go back, I think, is what we're getting the understanding. And Callie says, there's nothing back there for you. They cannot save you. Again, I think she's right. And that's what makes this line so great. They can't save her. And it's what makes her line so much better when she says, no, but I can save them. And there is an argument to be made. Could we get to this point with Elle without going through this entire episode of getting her to recognize that she needs to go back to Hawkins? Probably. But I think the way in which we got here was entertaining, maybe not necessary, but I think it allowed us to justify her emotional journey in this. Yeah. So she's very angry. She feels betrayed when she leaves Hawkins by everybody. 
all these folks who she feels like are lying to her, not giving her this information. I think earlier in this episode, Callie even says, and does your policeman friend tell you you can't use your powers? And she's like, yeah, yeah. So when she gets to this point, I feel like she's gone on what I would call a, a validation journey. Like she's, her agency here is very much, it makes sense. If we had just jumped from one point to the next where she just decides, you know what? Yes, I'm going to stay in Hawkins. I'm going to fight for my friends. I don't think that payoff would be nearly as impactful as this episode gave us. And so yeah. when she says yeah. that, it makes that moment so good. Yeah. And as I mentioned earlier, it really kind of falls into that hero's journey trope where your character has to go off into an unfamiliar land or place to discover themselves, to kind of be put to the test. And if they come through that experience successfully, they will be changed and ready to return home to take on the real threat. So yeah, I think Elle needed to have this episode to come back home. Again, we haven't watched the next episode yet to see what role she'll play, but clearly she's going to save her friends in some way, shape, or form. They're in a pickle. I mean, as we mentioned, Hawkins Lab is about to be overrun by demogorgon beings, whatever they are, and all of her friends are in danger. Do you think it's going to be a demogorgonalition? <laughs> <laughs> I think I just set a record for bad dad jokes in this episode. <laughs> well, I don't, I see, I like them. I like bad, bad dad and dad bad jokes as well. Those are good too. Yeah, those are, <laughs> both are good. Well, that's not the last scene. The, no. There's this really cool transition after she makes the choice. There's a close up of Callie looking out the van window. You see her reflection and it just kind of dissolves into L, kind of having the same, the sisterly expression, the same expression. On the bus, interestingly enough, there's this lady across from her that looks at her. I don't know if this is kind of creepy. Like, I don't know if this would. I mean, I, I guess I can appreciate someone looking out for a young person. But if I'm looking at 2022 me and I have like a 12 year old kid on a bus, I'm like, I don't want anybody talking to my 12 year old kid. But this is 1985 and we're taking a gentle approach here. And this lady says, uh, so where are you headed? After she <laughs> ingratiates herself next to her. <laughs> yeah. And Elle finishes the episode with one line. She says, I'm going to my friends. I'm going home. And that's the other contrast from earlier in the episode where she's trying to define and redefine what her home is. And she realizes that home is not just Hawkins. It's where her friends are. Home is right. where the heart is, Adam. <laughs> and so it she's... Is. She's she's ready to go back and fight. I kind of hope she keeps the haircut because that kind of makes her a little badass. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's just her hair. But yeah, with, you know, some type of grease in it, product <laughs> some motor oil or something. <laughs> it's definitely not Farrah Fawcett puffs like, <laughs> no. like Steve uses. Yeah. But yeah, the very the very last shot, I think, is it cuts to, you know, the bus kind of passing a sign that says, Welcome to Indiana. Yeah. I, it was kind of a nice way because that's the full circle. Like she, yeah, she went on her journey, but she's coming home. She's coming back to our familiar setting. So everyone who was concerned that the show suddenly became a Chicago-based series need not worry. We are coming back to Indiana and all you have to do is press play on the next episode. Which I'm going to do because I'm at sure this you point, will. 
I feel like I can do it. I did it last time. I will do it again this time. <laughs> and and right as it cuts to black, we get a little credit that says with Matthew Modine, which makes yep. sense. They didn't put his, his name in the beginning credits because then you would give away the surprise, I guess, that he was going to be in this episode. But for people that don't know, if they haven't listened to the first season that we covered, I work with Matthew and I remember when he was negotiating for this particular appearance he was a little frustrated because he was i guess you could say promised a somewhat larger more important part in this season and it ended up really just being this one scene and there were a couple little flashback shots of him in some of the earlier episodes where he's like at l's birth you see him upside down we mentioned that his face and a couple other quick shots like his face on a photograph when he's younger things like that but overall it was uh, a little disappointing for him that he didn't have a, a larger role but i guess outside of flashback his character's dead we're supposed to think outside Apparently. of flashbacks there there wouldn't be much to uh to shoot unless he had a lost brother <laughs> that's right that's the lost <laughs> brother episode that we've been waiting for that takes place in new york <laughs> There is a Matthew Modine movie where he plays twins. It's called Equinox, directed by Alan oh. Rudolph from like 1992. It's, it co-stars uh, Fred Ward, Marissa Tomei, oh, Laurie yeah. Singer. It's, uh, it's a, a decent, it's a good, it's a good film. Um, it's hard yeah. to find. It's one of those movies that never kind of made it to Blu-ray or anything. I don't even know if it's on DVD. It was on Laserdisc or, and VHS, so you might have to hunt it down. But yeah, he plays <laughs> himself, two versions of himself. It's wonder if he got double the pay. Yeah. And Van Damme did it too in uh, Double Impact. Double Impact, yeah. Yeah. I remember that one. Around the same time too. It was a big thing, I guess, at this point in the early 90s <laughs> to make movies where you play yourself an evil version and a good version of yourself. Yeah. Van Damme did something similar in Time Cop where he played two versions of himself, not twins, but like a present and from past different versions. times yeah yeah, yeah. Future, that was a pretty good movie future van damme and you know past yeah no i i enjoyed it i i remember when that came out was it 94 that's my guess i think so yeah. 94 i uh bought the vhs yeah i didn't own any other van damme movies that that one i felt was good enough to be in my vhs collection <laughs> it's Clean. gone now i uh, well i no longer have just, my vhs collection i i t- <laughs> I'm disappointed that that's the Van Damme movie that you would have in your collection, not Kickboxer or Bloodsport. I mean, these are these are movies that are worthy of being in any collection. It's because I was a sci-fi fan at that ah. point in time. So because of the time component really hooked me, really got me excited. So I owned mostly science fiction films. If I owned them on VHS, they were mostly science fiction at that point in time. I gotcha. then branched out and started watching all other genres and appreciating dramas, action, comedy, all of that. But yeah, I was, I was a big sci-fi guy, as if you couldn't gotcha. tell. <laughs> Just a little hint here and there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you became, became a movie renaissance man, which is, which is always good. Right. You got to start somewhere, right? You got you to gotta have an entry point. And yeah. Yeah. For me, it was martial arts 80s movies. And then I branched Was out. it really? Was that it was. I, I mean, if it's far back as I can remember, I had this. We had. I told this story on our last episode about renting movies on a Friday night, and most of the time they were 
like Kickboxer or Bloodsport or Karate Kid. I love martial arts movies. I think they're just I and I say that present tense. I, I absolutely right. No, no. Adore, I, adore. I, I I think they're great. I think for me it was again it was movies like E.T. The Last Starfighter. Again, science fiction that really got me hooked. Back to the Future, Star Trek two and three and four. Yeah. So those were like my earliest memories of films that I I would watch repeatedly on TV or that I saw in the film. So it's no wonder that I'm you know a fan to this day of, of all those films and why I bring them up repeatedly on uh, <laughs> on this podcast. As you should, because it's your show <laughs> and my show. We can do what we want. Well, exactly. with that, we are going to say adieu. This will complete this episode of an original series. Adam, what's coming up next? Next is the penultimate episode. We, I love that word. I know we've used it before. The second to last episode, chapter eight, The Mind Flayer. This returns the Duffer Brothers, both writing and directing, and they write and direct both Chapter 8 and Chapter 9. So it's obviously going to be like a two-parter grand finale that wraps everything up, and they write and direct both. So I'm excited because I don't think they've, I think it was the first two episodes of the season, and then two of them went to Sean Levy, Levy, mm-hmm. I keep getting it it's wrong. It's Levy. It's Levy. Yeah. We, we established last season it was Levy. <laughs> <laughs> and then I second guessed myself. Am I saying it right? Cali, Cali, uh, Cooley. Yeah. Kool-Aid. <laughs> and then two, two Andrew Stantons. And then this one, this one-off directed by Rebecca Thomas. So now we have the final two by the Duffers. So I'm excited. I am too. And uh, <laughs> right. with that, we'll finish up this conversation. Thank you guys, as always, for listening. I'm Patch, he's Adam, and we are out of here.